0: Welcome to the Words Matter Podcast, the Course Health Series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter Podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we continue our exploration of the Course Health book, And have reached the midway point. And in this episode, I'm speaking with Matthew Lowe about his chapter eight titled Above and Beyond Statistical Evidence Why Stories Matter for Clinical Decisions and Shared Decision Making. Matthew is a consultant physiotherapist in the south of England and is a visiting associate at the Orthopedic Research Institute at Bournemouth University. Many of you will be aware of Matt's excellent writing and thinking, and he's been on this podcast twice previously in episodes seven and 10 where we've talked about evidence, practice, and knowledge. So in this episode, we talk about Matt's journey into dispositionalism and cause health. We talk about evidence-based medicine in the context of MSK practice and how it has shaped and impacted his own clinical practice. We talk about how a dispositionist view of causation can frame the clinical questions and problems within musculoskeletal care. We talk about the role of clinical judgment can we have too much, and who wins in a fight, evidence or judgement, and what to do and what to think when these knowledge domains collide. We talk about stories or statistics, or stories and statistics, and how both forms of evidence can complement each other to give a vivid portrayal of the individual person and their complex causal story we talk about the co-construction of stories as a way of mutually identifying dispositions within the person, and finally we talk about the practical and clinical consequences of adopting a dispositionless perception of causation. So as expected, this was another hugely satisfying and insightful conversation with Matt. Matt has so much to offer on causality, evidence and person-centred care. His vast clinical experience means that his perspective is very much from the trenches making dispositionist theory all the more accessible and usable for clinicians. So please enjoy this episode. Matt will definitely be back in a Words Matter quadrilogy later on this year. I bring you Matthew Lowe. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ollie. Thanks for having me. So, This is the third time that we've spoken on the podcast, but uh, this is a pleasure to to speak to you again about topics which we're mutually dedicated to and interested in in discussing and, and pursuing. So thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: So we're going to talk about your chapter eight of the book, and the title of the chapter is Above and Beyond Statistical Evidence, Why Stories Matter for Clinical Decisions and Shared Decision Making. So, I love the chapter, it really jumped out at me, and I wonder if you could tell us your thinking behind the chapter and, and where it came from. Yeah,
1: so I was having a, a, a talk with Rani Lilanium and she was basically mulling over, because I've contributed in various different ways to the Course Health Project, and she, she really wanted to um, focus on a particular area so the title came from a reflection of my my clinical practice and and how philosophy has really been instrumental in in my development personally but also how evidence-based healthcare care uh, um, and the tensions surrounding it have kind of led us towards this what do we prioritize type question so having conversations with fellow clinicians with people on various social media i think there's always this kind of tension that exists between well you know what do we take seriously what should we see see as primary and because of the way in which the original conception of evidence-based medicine de-emphasized to a to an extent, de-emphasised narratives. I felt this would be a good opportunity to actually say, okay, well, where's the thrust of the cause health project? The thrust of the cause health project is to look at the causally relevant information, and the causally relevant information or evidence is lies and resides within the person that we're trying to to help in within the clinic and the stories that that person comes to the clinic with. So it sits within the person and also their experiences. So, so I felt that the the book chapter needed to reflect that, and that's where the title came from.
0: That's brilliant. And so maybe because you touched on it, how you became interested in or came into contact with course health and your contribution to the to the project. Tell us a bit more. How did you stumble your way? Maybe it wasn't a stumble, but how did you find your way into course health and your journey into dispositionalism? And and I'm interested in how maybe how your conception. Of evidence-based practice has potentially changed, and were you were you initially on board with the more traditional view of EBM, which didn't place a huge emphasis, or at least not explicitly, on patient narratives and clinical judgment, but the primacy was was largely on the evidence? And did we did were you there at some point, and then suddenly transitioned to mm. a different conception?
1: Yeah. So when I first qualified, my perspective was very much centered around the more knowledge that I gained with regards to the um, anatomy or the research evidence with regards to exper- experimental designs, the more randomized control trials that I could put to memory, the the more things that in quotes work versus don't work. As, as long as I basically knew the research... I would be able to implement that into practice in a very straightforward way, and that would manifest in really good results. So, for example, let's say if you had an Achilles tendon problem, you know, all the rage at the one time was the Alfredson's eccentric heel uh, regime. You know, eccentric heel drop regime, and it it was it was the gold standard. Yeah, absolutely. So, so regardless of the context, everybody at that time were giving their patients eccentric heel exercises without really necessarily paying attention to the circumstances of the situations or even the demographic that they were teaching bearing in mind mm. how reflective that was of the research population that was studied during those uh, RCTs so it was a it was our fault as physiotherapists I think that we indiscriminately applied the research evidence into practice without really making that really sensible judgment on, okay, how reflective is this, or these groups of studies reflective of the patient? So it kind of expressed a little bit of a a naivety, really. So, so that, that, that gives you a kind of sense, and there are many, many other examples. Um, we could talk about transversal abdominis uh, for course and core stability exercises. We could talk about kinetic control. We could talk about all sorts of various fads that have had some research evidence to support that, that they worked. And then essentially, various people over time became almost kind of gurus of that particular method or approach. And then they would be applying it and they would certainly get some outcomes. And then there they would describe how, how great that these particular approaches would be. But, you know, I think, you know, ultimately what we were forgetting was the patient. So it became all about the research evidence and then what kind of research evidence you thought was best and then it became part of your identity as a clinician and somehow the patient was kind of forgotten about that's my reflections on my history going going back uh, you know 17 16 17 years ago and you know to an extent i don't know if that's still happening today it may still be but uh, you know i think going going back to the question there was a there was a tendency to take research evidence and apply it almost indiscriminately based on the body area or the condition or the diagnosis. And the idea was that if you had enough randomised control trial evidence, you'd be able to treat all these patients and they would all do pretty well. And if they didn't, well, they were non-responder, you know, physiotherapy wasn't uh, effective for that particular case. You know, so th- that was completely unsatisfactory. And when when I did postgraduate study and postgraduate work, the understanding the totality of the evidence for me was something that I needed to really embark upon in a really rigorous way. And that's what um, I, I kind of came across in lots of different types of ways. And fast forwarding to Roger Kerry's work, that really struck a chord with me. So Roger Kerry, at the time, uh, I think he would done, he'd done a presentation in Canada, I-FOMPT, uh, something like 2012, I think it was. And he was talking about causation and the relevant call, causal evidence that we try to arrive to understand and the limitations. And that really struck, it really struck me. So that was the kind of beginning of me making my journey with trying to understand the causally relevant evidence. And I would followed his work and then I got in touch with Roger and um, presented some ideas that I had. And then I, that was the way I kind of stumbled across into the uh, course health domain.
0: So now's probably a good time just to signpost the future chapter episode with Roger on his chapter 13 on causal dispositionism in evidence based healthcare. But I, I just maybe want to hang on to the two examples that you used in reference to your, your practice just because I, I think they're good examples to think about you, the assumptions around causality that you had as a clinician and the evidence and, and the research studies that you applied or interpreted. So thinking about the Achilles tendinopathy, simple intervention, heel drops or the you know the core stability uh, interventions for back pain. And just following on from the previous episodes with Ronnie and Eleanor and Samantha about, can you tell us a bit about how the assumptions around causality from those single interventions to maybe how, how you view causality now and the disposition list view that you take? So The issue I I guess surrounds what we believed reality
1: was in terms of causation is reality with regards to events that we see in terms of causally relevant information, events that we see that happen repeatedly again and again and again. And so if we see something that happens again and again and again, then that's going to be enough. Or whether or not we take an element of that and say, yes, that's a feature of causation, may not be causation in its entirety. And we take lots of other elements and we compile that all together. And essentially, the, the movement towards causal dispositionalism is ontologically, it's singular. In other words, causation is a singular thing, but how we access it is through lots of different ways. And we have to prioritize, and this is what it is expressed in the, in the book chapter, is we have to prioritize cer- certain elements depending on the context. And often in the clinic context it's the it's the person that we we we're, we're trying to help so the, the the person's narrative is one source of evidence but in, in amongst that is a number of different elements of evidence there are, There is research evidence which informs some of the background, some of the pathology or the presentation or the clinical impression. There is uh, research evidence, of course, about what type of intervention may be helpful for that particular case but there's also causally relevant information or an evidence from my own experience. So you could argue, you know, this isn't too far from Dave Sackett's kind of tri-try compartmental model of uh, how to apply evidence-based practice. And, and you know, there, there is certainly, that's, that's been helpful, but what hasn't been necessarily really talked about is how you prioritise that information. So, so causation is it, how you access it is from multiple sources. They point towards causation, but they don't actually tell you what it is uh, causally going on necessarily. And, you know, as, as physiotherapists, we, you know, we have to consider other factors. Yeah. We have to consider the capacities to affect and be affected. So much as you might look at, say, for example, I'm going to talk a bit abstractly now, but let's say, for example, you were looking at a knife. You'd look at the properties of the knife and you look at the propensity of it to be able to cut. Well, there are certain ways that you could use a knife and it wouldn't necessarily be cutting. Uh, It's the same knife, but you wouldn't necessarily cut. Uh, If you turn it the other way around, for example, it may not manifest its ability to cut if it is left in a drawer or something like that and and also it needs to be yielded and utilized in a certain way. If we consider clinical practice, the capacity to affect and be affected has to come from the interaction and the intersubjectivity between the person and and the, and the clinician and and reflective of both accounts. So as much as we're having this conversation, Ollie, we need to be able to engage with each other in a way that we are both affected. I have to have the capacity to affect, you have to have the capacity to be affected. Much like a knife being stuck in a titanium or concrete uh, object is not going to be particularly effective at cutting, we need to have the capacity to affect and be affected in the clinical relationship, in the clinical encounter. Mm. So this goes far, far beyond looking at statistical repeated accounts. It looks at the depth and quality of me as an individual, the way in which I articulate myself, the way in which I can tailor my communication for that individual person based on some presuppositions and experiences and ideas that I have about what that person may understand or not, and that person to be able to express themselves and that person to be able to tell them their story and the way in which I articulate. A certain way of a physical examination that is culturally shaped, yeah, and structured that that makes coherent sense for that person and myself, and then we start to grow toward uh, something that has the capacity mm. to be affected.
0: Completely, you know, I think. I think the first thing to say is that I've had beavers and wine glasses as abstract kind of metaphors. <laughs> so, so a knife is <laughs> is crystal clear. And the second thing is, yeah, I mean, just as you say it's it's a it's a world away from from robotically applying systematic review data to to anonymous patients. You know, it's it's it's, it's a real shift. And and I've I, you know I've got a, a question that I wrote down, which is the kind of question you'd ask as an eight year old: who'd win, Spider Man or Batman? And the question is, you who'd win the fight? evidence or judgement you know what wins and and i think one of the tensions or conflicts conditions of of all sorts might be familiar with is when evidence doesn't seem to to map or contradict one's experience and so so if, if we take take the randomised controlled trial looking at heel drops for Achilles tendinopathy if that proclaims a truth that that intervention is effective for this particular condition but yet in one's experience, that may not be the case in seeing, you know, patients over the years with the same sort of condition, who to believe? Do you believe your own experience, your own judgment? Or do you say, well, actually, you know, I'm going to, I'm, you know, the evidence overrides what I think about this patient or my perceptions around my experience, because I'm likely wrong. And the evidence is the kind of arbiter of kind of what's going on. That's a really good question.
1: And I think, we should be as clinicians rightfully wrestling with this tension because we we're we're human beings we're very good at deceiving ourselves and we need to keep some sense of checking you know it's very easy for us to just practice in such a way that our own truths create false circularities and confirm yet again what we do so who who wins well we'll both win um because if we assume that patients are individuals that research is context dependent as is the individual case if we if we recognize that let's exactly if we, we're dealing with living systems where the processes that maintain those living systems are ever, ever fluctuant fluctuating change much like homeostatic models are then we have to be flexible within that at the same time we have to not kid ourselves so the both both judgment has to be checked with research evidence but also with our clinicians with our colleagues with our friends we uh, to mean to and also having conversations with those who disagree with us i think that's really important because having this discourse this uh, this dialectical relationship which allows us to keep ourselves in check and be mindful and reflect on the research data on the research evidence and how it's applied and on our practice, I think that these constant constant tensions are working together. So if you were to say to me who wins the fight, it would have to be a draw. but if you were to say to me in the individual case at a particular space and time, what evidence would I pay attention to as primary and what I, would I pay attention to secondary? I'd have to say to you that primary comes from the person, the individual case, and the research evidence sits behind that and supports or negates perhaps the direction of where we would go. So, there's no, so we're trying to align them. So, the causally relevant information has to be heading in the same kind of direction. If they're not heading in the same direction, then there's a problem. And I need to be very aware of that. So, if uh, let's say there's very strong evidence for a particular type of intervention, and then the patient says to me that, you know, and we have a, a, a careful communication uh, dialogue and the patient wants to have something that is against that in a very strong way then i would have to consider that very very strongly and i would have to, i would want to be clear with that person the direction of where we should go if we want this to be effective. If the evidence is really strong, a particular intervention is the right way that we should head towards their particular problem based on the examination uh, thus far, it would be ludicrous for us to go against that if it's very strong. In musculoskeletal healthcare, I'm not confident there is much very, very strong evidence for, for a lot of things, unless you know something I don't, Ollie
0: no i'm i'm imagining that surgery for cordquinas syndrome is potentially is a is a kind of reasonably linear monocausal event that if you address the the cause of the caudal compression then The effect of the on the bound the bladder is reduced. But I I imagine, I I also imagine there may be people walking around with similar causal events taking place, but without manifesting symptoms. Absolutely. So we, you know, and and requina, we're thinking of it
1: as an event. But as we all know, it sits along a continuum between complete, incomplete, various, you know, grades in between. And it's also dependent on, for example, the age of the patient. So the patient may be having quite, uh, might be, might be uh, over some time have developed quite severe. Spinal stenosis, for example, and you would have to weigh up the pros and cons of that person who's potentially been walking around with incomplete caudal quina syndrome for some time before you make that kind of intervention. So again, where's that evidence coming from? Well, it's coming from that person, isn't it?
0: That's a really good example of some of the properties. The same kind of structural event in different people will 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 lead to different effects, if if you like. It seems like age is one particular feature of an individual, but there's a gazillion other features mm. which in a particular constellation might lead to this mutual manifestation partnership that Marnie's been talking about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's um so so perhaps we can use the example of either a disc prolapse for sciatica, or perhaps we could use the example of osteoarthritis for knee pain, for example. So for, for osteoarthritis with somebody who has knee pain, it's not just the presence of changes on an X-ray that we would need to pay attention to. You know, we would have to hmm. weigh up all sorts of other histories of that individual case. We'd have to uh, look at the, if there was a mechanism of injury or not, we'd have to look at the behaviour of the symptoms and so on. And we would look at the, the uh, x-ray findings and we would bring in uh, a, plur- a pluralism of evidence to, to suggest that this is the clinical diagnosis. But the problem with a clinical diagnosis such as osteoarthritis is that it can be seen as a deterministic one. That is that this is a long-term condition, it's only going to get worse, which then leads very nicely on to, well, you need to have a definitive intervention, which if you're an orthopaedic surgeon is going to be surgery. So, this is where we feel that within Course Health, that yeah. even if you have this idea of a, a very clear, concrete diagnosis, that many mutual manifestation partners such as in a person with osteoarthritis, let's say, for example, uh, systemic inflammation as a factor that may sensitise the joint, for example. Are there things that we can do that can interfere with that as being a factor? And so we think about uh, body adiposity, so we think about weight weight loss. So it's not just about weight through the knee joint uh, that's causing sensitization to the knee joint-causing peripheral nociception, which of course could be an element of it, but essentially it's looking beyond what seems to be obvious. We're looking at other factors, that person's uh, ability to go about their particular day. We're looking at their um, relationship towards the diagnosis. We're looking at fear. We're looking at anxiety. We're looking at perhaps the mechanical properties around their knee that include Talk that's developed from the musculoskeletal structures you know the stabilizing features the ability of sensory motor disturbance or proprioception through the knee you know there are so many things that we can consider in the treatment and management of somebody with osteoarthritis that goes beyond just the the joint and the very straightforward linear way of thinking about there's the diagnosis, these are the exercises, you look at weight loss, you look at exercise, and so on. Because everything, if we're looking at causation, also has a dose response effect. So then we're thinking about, well, to what degree mm. are we going to work this?
0: And and that has its own kind of nuance. So so given the complexity of dispositionalism, or at least its position on complexity, that it or rather, given all these different factors, or all these different potential partnerships of dispositions and and the seemingly infinite constellation of mm. cause and effect relationships in a single yeah. individual, you wouldn't, you'd forgive clinicians to say, oh my goodness, this is all just too much. You know, it's just, it's cognitively too demanding. How can I possibly see or formulate some or navigate some sort of path to make a decision with a, with a person, with a patient? And, so, and you've got a section in the chapter about the therapeutic relationship and there's some linkages with dispositionalism. So maybe you want to say something about, given that there are these complex relationships, how might a therapeutic relationship or alliance help a clinician navigate their clinical practice? Well, perhaps, a, perhaps an easier way to conceive this is
1: think about a space of possibilities, And then think about how the space of possibilities could become actualized. How can we bring these partners together to create some, facilitate some kind of change? Now, Now, because of your experience, Ollie, in treating predominantly, probably I'm guessing, back pain, you are going to draw from your experience about relative features that you will head towards based upon, you know, positive outcomes. And certain types of features that you would have seen in 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 your own experience and the particular case in front of you. But what this creates is a a really rich environment to look to explore and be hesitant with regards to, but in a positive way, about exploring possibilities and directions forwards. There are in complex adaptive systems, there is this idea of attractor states or attractor situations where repeated types of or what appears to be linear causality, linear situations, things that seem to work, for want of a better context in this situation, that you could apply those things. So, for example, you might find that there is a particular pattern. You've seen something. This person may have difficulty, for example, doing a functional task. They appear to move in a particular way. You've seen a pattern through your experience, pattern recognition, and you're going to use this 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 approach, but you're going to be somewhat hesitant and adjust it accordingly. And you may actually see some obstacles coming because of the, how that patient presented to you. There's a certain sense of actually, I, I, I have a feeling this isn't this this may work, but this this particular thing's not going to be quite right. Mm. But I'm also realised that this patient doesn't want to, it needs to be taken seriously because they've been dismissed before by a previous healthcare practitioner. So what went wrong last time? So you're learning from previous people's previous failures you're you're learning from failure which is a causal claim for for want of a better description so you're applying that situation of failure Uh, for example a patient uh, a previous therapist may have been particularly strong on this patient's uh, perhaps fear avoidance of flexion and used a loads of pain neuroscience education inappropriately perhaps or too forcefully for this individual and so what you've done is you've 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 hesitated about saying to them about the, the fear of fear of bending so what you may have done is is that within the cultural environment of expectation of you being an osteopath what you perhaps have done is you've laid the patient in the side lying and you've repeated flexion with them you've done a dare I say it a flexion pivot passive physiological movements into flexion. and you've uh, and you've advised that patient at the time you're talking about what your aim is that you're, you're perhaps reassured them that part of the spine can bend your um uh you' you're perhaps involving various other elements not just hip flexion knee flexion but also cervical flexion there is a pattern of movement that perhaps that person is starting to learn there's a motor learning program out of context that's fearful inside lying on a plinth then what you do perhaps is that you put that patient into a sitting position you're loading them up perhaps i'm using the mechanical you know side to things but i'm applying now uh, in a safe environment, flexion-based movements. And I'm saying, recall what you were doing in that period and apply it in this situation. Now stand up and now bend. Does that feel any different? How do you feel there? Or whatever. Do you see, do you see what I mean? You're learning from cases of failure. You're applying your experience, knowledge, and expertise for that particular case based on their current situation. So you, it, it, what I'm talking about is these this infinite space of possibilities which you have walked into, let's call it a constellation, you have seen various constellations form in front of you in the past and you're going, well, I'm going to walk down a particular path that's familiar, I'm not going to do that but i am going to explore these possibilities with this patient and i'm going to change with my psychological and social flexible skills a way in which resonates with that individual case and then you shape it towards a direction that you both wish to
0: travel and recognizing that that the direction the consolation that you're walking to may well be wrong and and that you're critically re- you know reflexive and thinking, well, you know seem to fit that pattern or seem to map to that collection of of stars, but actually, it's not working out. Or, or you pick up on some cues yes. which suggest that you were you were wrong. Yes, that's
1: so important, Ollie. You've hit the nail on the head. I think it recognize it's that hesitancy. It's having that humility to recognize mm. that this isn't necessarily going to work. And um, and having the re- reflexivity to adjust your plan, and that is true both of your practice, but also of the research evidence. I think we have to be epistemically humble. We have to be humble about our knowledge in reflection and understanding mm. of the the lived experiences and the the reality of the the worlds that we the, the world that we're working in. You know, it's it's not this. It's not simple linear. Do this. Do this. Do
0: this. And and you you slap yourself on the wrist by using mechanical language, loading and flexion. But it exists. But exactly. And so and all of that stuff, which is at least in the worlds of mosquito care, it's often demonized. And the minute you mention these terms, mm. these are kind of dirty words and this whole kind of hands off, hands-on dichotomy. But but all of those things, all those those mechanical descriptions for want of a better description, occur in the context of a relationship. It would be untrue to to say that they, they describe the relationship, it's not a mechanical relationship you have with the person. It's an individual therapeutic alliance of which there are mechanical features, if you want, or components to that relationship. And, and so some of
1: it is, is a language issue, some of it is associated with the, the challenges with explanation, some of, some of the sensitivity associated with us using mechanical explanations is for an absolutely darn good reason and that's because yeah. of the history of us overemphasizing it and because we've overemphasized it, it's put us in a power relationship with others saying that we know what's right based on this particular thing and now we're stay, saying well actually hold on we should be hesitant about it but we shouldn't be um so strong that we actually it stops us in our tracks and we don't actually have a conversation about it
0: yeah but certainly being attuned to the possible interpretations of those phrases and how they might be received and and all of that takes it takes a level of awareness and compassion and alliance with the individual that possibly wasn't there previously, if we go back in terms of healthcare practice. And I think um, what we're looking for in
1: the the therapeutic relationship, going back to the alliance part, is an emergent experience which could not have manifested uh, by the clinician and patient by themselves. And that is the sign of a very positive outcome, is that the experience and the outcome and the way in which that person has necess- as, as, as moved forward in their journey would not have manifested by themselves and it would not have manifested with the clinician. It is something that has come because of the the unity between the two of them. Mm.
0: And, and I spoke about this with Eleanor in a previous episode and she mentioned strikingly that cause health really don't mention empathy or compassion and we spoke about that it seems like it's a good idea to to show compassion and empathy towards a person that's suffering but it also turns out that by those features of an empathetic therapeutic relationship i.e., to get to really know the the person to give them space and time to share their stories with you, you you develop or rather you get purchase on causally relevant information so it's not just a nice thing to do, which has a psychological effect on the person that they're being listened to and validated, which, is, which are all fantastic side effects of being compassionate and empathetic. But as a clinician, it gives you causally relevant information to begin to make decisions or, and to begin to have an understanding of how this person has ended up in the situation that they're in and what potentially you can do about it with them.
1: Absolutely, and so it's it's not only is it causally relevant information, as you said, it it has a modifying effect. (laughs) You're getting a win-win. It's
0: a double whammy, (laughs) you know. So so it's um you know it's it's a no-brainer when you consider Mm. it that way. Mm. Maybe we could we could touch on that this idea. You know, sorry to go back to the hands-off or hands-on debate, but this either-or that it's either statistics. Or it's either just stories and narratives. Is this oversimplification and probably straw really of, of these different positions? And for me, that's the challenge of clinical practice. That's the that's the fulfilling challenge or the the, the tricky challenge of when a, when is a challenge not tricky. Anyway, but incorporating statistics, evidence, or research evidence with stories and trying to somehow Intellectually fudge these two things together, so they seem to make sense for that particular clinical situation. Yeah, so
1: you know, that's 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 you're absolutely right. I think as much as we have to accept and acknowledge that people are different, we've got to acknowledge that you know therapists making sense of all this are different, and we're going to have our own particular sway towards what we uh, kind of trust, perhaps. But I, you know, I believe that if you ask any therapist or medi- your person involved in healthcare, or, that it's always both, you know, statistical accounts, narratives. They, but I think they, depending on the context, you're going to shift towards one way or the other. And I guess there's different resolutions. So if you're, uh, conce- if you're having a conversation in a in a let's say um, about conditions. Uh, broadly, let's say diabetes, then your resolution is going to be pretty uh, scale, and then the, the the ability of the clinician is to zoom that resolution into that individual case, uh, at the person who is pre-diabetic, and then the story really does matter: their relationship with food, their history, their parents, how they were brought up, you know, all sorts of other things, child, adver- you know, adverse uh, childhood. Uh, experiences, all sorts of other factors may be relevant causally within that person. So the degree of scale is something that needs to be considered. The resolution may be, if we're stepping back at a scale resolution, may be more reflective of statistical information. And then it's the skill of the clinician to be able to zoom that into the individual case. And, and so that's what I think, rather than seeing this as diametric, diametrically opposite, think of it as resolution. So you have statistical data that kind of helps with getting a sense of populations, but what we need to do is be able to draw from that as close as we can to a pinpoint accuracy as best as we can within the skills that we have individually to make it applicable as best we can with that individual case. Bearing in mind, it's not just one way to the other. You know, it's bi-directional. It's not something that you can just go, right, as long as I have all the statistical population data and I have this kind of, let's say, miraculous ability to be able to kind of pull that and make it make this fit this individual case. Let's imagine you could do that, which is impossible. Um, but imagine you can do that. It still wouldn't necessarily work out. Yeah. So it's the ability to be able to work between those two domains. Imagine you've got a camera and you're zooming in and zooming out again. So I think that's where the skill perhaps of the, 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 you know, the expert clinicians, they have the ability to be able to look at the research evidence, get an idea generally over a population, recognising the limitations of the research with regards to that population, and then make this inference towards the individual mm. case.
0: And so I think, so thinking about the, the practical implications of taking a, or using dispositionism in clinical practice, or as a framework for a clinical practice, you know, it seems like there are some material differences. You, a clinician, will do things differently. Mm. That they'll spend time on other things that perhaps, or spend more time on other things that they perhaps wouldn't have done. Spend less time on other things, or their clinical or therapeutic gaze will be will be shifted. And I'm just interested to know, you know, what does it look like, or how has it shaped, how has it changed your clinical practice? And and because it, it would suggest that e- even the way that you're describing that. Mm. The use of statistics yeah. or statistical evidence, there's a whole set of skills there, and judgments which don't seem to just come with time. I mean, if you just if you graduated as a clinician in the seventies, unless you pick up the course health book or something similar, then you might well still be just applying research evidence in a dispassionate, kind of systematic, robotic way. So I just wonder how. You know, what is that, you know, fleshing out what is that skill set that needs to develop within clinicians Mm. and how does that play out in clinical practice? And Mm. you can use some of your own experience, maybe from what you were doing before to what you're doing now.
1: I guess one way of looking at it is to not look at clinical reasoning as just this idea of algorithmic or adding up and taking away of factors, because I think that is how this particular approach, dispositionalism, can be seen as is it's, well, you've got these factors, these things tend towards it, these things tend away from it. It's as simple as that. Just identify them and see the direction that they go in. And it's all made up by the clinician. You know, so that's 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 not what the 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 center of cause health is about. It's recognizing that uh, there are these tendencies, these causal powers that tend towards an effect that don't necess- necessitate it. And that they it's not a question of just um, stacking them up, adding them up. And I think that's one of the key differences between that and perhaps other di- uh, other approaches. Mm-hmm. So other approaches, uh, multi-dimensional approaches, will look at these various factors. They will stack up them up, mm-hmm. and they'll assume that that because the patients, by virtue of the fact that they're there, these stacked up factors have caused the pain. And m- it's merely a fact. That if i can take these things away or i can make them more resilient so thus indirectly take them away then the pain gets better so it's really this case of adding and subtracting now that's a very uh, unidimensional way of looking at it so there's this idea it's multidimensional. this is the difference between multifactorial which is where you get all these different factors and weigh them up and true multidimensionality. Multidimensionality means that you have an array of things. I think constellations are a lovely idea, but these the, 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 the interaction between these causal re, uh, relating factors have additive, subtractive effects between themselves as well. So it's not just a question of stacking them up. So this gives us a tentative suggestion of a direction of a manifestation towards an effect. So... Uh, exercise is a good uh, example you you, it's a generally recognized and and perhaps biased perspective from a physical therapist that exercise has a good effect on you know certain types of conditions and situations we almost use it universally and we also say well actually it has all these positive effects in terms of lifestyle systemic inflammation and so on you know improves cardiovascular disease diabetes and so on and so forth but uh, in the context of somebody who has a pain condition you know if we get that dose wrong or other things happen with regards to that person's life in terms of how they've worked in a particular day or how they you know various various things that they've done in their lives yeah and they do they do these exercises and it makes their symptoms worse well that's that's exercise as an intervention has actually made the situation worse for that person it's not this question of you know well exercise well, it's, 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 there's more nuance to that. There is an entire spectrum of things that we need to consider when it comes to applying even an individual exos- uh, you know, uh, uh, modality, such as exercise, and how that makes sense to that individual, how they can implement it in their lives, how can they uh, marry this off against other things that happen uh, in, in a typical day, uh, what they do, uh, and also what their recovery patterns are like, for example, and how you're staggering that throughout the week. So even if we were to consider one single element, we can overcook it, or the pe- it can actually make the symptoms or situation worse. And you, you know, there's this great, you know, it's felt that exercise will be the intervention that's going to sort all of these conditions out. And and it, well, and everyone intuitively will agree with me that uh, you know it's very inherently context dependent. And so that's, you know, mm. again, what cause health is getting at, is recognising the context dependency and the application of decision-making uh, and recognises complex situations.
0: And and you mentioned, and you nicely described the difference between multifactorial and true multidimensionality. As I see it. <laughs> as you see it. But I think maybe what you were getting at, or at least what I read into it, was that The bias psychosocial model, it seems to to recognise a range of factors with regard to pain, illness, etc., and dispositionalism, which is different. I mean, we we are. It would be quite nice to have to to maybe explain some of the differences because they're not the same. In what way is dispositionalist theory different to the bias psychosocial model? There seems to be elements which are similar, but elements which are quite different
1: yeah dispositionalism doesn't try to draw from particular phenomena in in kind of abstract ways by that i mean right we're going to look at the biological factors and we list those down look at the psychological factors we list those down we look at the social factors we list those down and then we'll try and see maybe dish out a questionnaire try yeah and then we're trying to see those interactions between the two or three or whatever yeah So as I interpret dispositionalism, it it comes from uh, the the, the factors are relevant depending on what that person is expressing to me and the intersubjective account that we have between ourselves. And that draws from all of those domains. Hmm. And I don't try to prioritise one or the other one over the other and re- and also recognize that there are some aspects that are out of reach for me that often is the case with regards to the social domain but there are things that perhaps we we can do far more effectively to 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 improve the social determinants of health this was covered with uh, Dave Dave Nichols chapter with you in the words matter podcasts but essentially what i'm saying is it's that um can you see what I'm saying we're not trying to, to 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 put these three things bio psycho social find out all of the relevant phenomena that sit within those particular domains and then stack them up yeah that's 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 not really what we're looking at is that we recognize that it is a whole it's a holistic approach a whole person-based approach
0: mm. what seems to be different too is this kind of mutual, effect that each that each has so the bias succession model kind of presumes that there's just a range of different things which you can just target individually and it doesn't seem to and I know that it's a Venn diagram and they're kind of overlapping but in a whole person view of causality that connection is kind of interdependent yes. Yeah. It makes more clear the interdependency of all those uh, causal related factors. It's
1: a lot more explicit. I think it sits implicitly within the um, biopsychosocial model. But again, if we look at the theories that underpin the biopsychosocial model, which I still think is a fantastic model, Um, I'm not trying to be critical about it, but all models, I think, need to evolve and change over time as we get better at things. But uh, the the biopsychosocial model is a hierarchically based system. And inherently there might be some problems with it, which will lend itself towards its use. So it's quite easy to look at the biopsychosocial model and break it down into components of parts and then create the emphasis on those broken parts or uh, explicate them upwards to the social domains of health and do a similar thing. And then your, either your explanation or your treatment goes in one direction or the other, So, 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 what disposition in my mind? What causal dispositionalism does is it? It it doesn't try to create this such this distinct
0: hierarchy, which then scaffolds and shapes the way you practice. Hmm. It does, and I think that's the. It's so bloody difficult not to see things in parts, isn't it? It's so. It's it's human nature to try and break things down into understandable chunks, of information, and the bias succession model. Is primed to do that because it's got these three components that our eyes are just drawn for simplicity to to one of the three, depending on the person, and we can begin to categorise patients as kind of biologically orientated problems, mm. socially orientated yeah. problems, perhaps, or psychologically orientated.
1: Mm. And and that's also reflective of us and our biases. And so this this way of um, this way of ac- accessing complexity, I think is we have to i think we we should consider where is the biopsychosocial model taking us is there is there a, a way in which we can move beyond the kind of tendency towards categorical ways of thinking and i think one way of which we can do that is to see it as a heuristic model you know that is is not grounded in in what we believe reality is and it's not ontologically grounded and which is where we're going with the dispositional causation. But we see the BPS model as a much more heuristic, As uh, by that I mean a, a rule of thumb, a model that we use to, to basically check ourselves as clinicians toward the various uh, phenomena and features that we
0: need to uh, keep open in our minds. And that's fine. Matt, if there were three things that you would like clinicians to take away from your chapter, what would they be?
1: I think probably the first one is perhaps to ask readers to reflect on their own practice and think, consider their journeys in how they've come to where they are and to consider whether or not they would choose to move forwards in a different direction depending on perhaps how the book has affected them. I guess the second thing is to recognise that and and I think a, a lot of clinicians do this already, but it's to not just see the patient narrative or history as just that. It it, it really does have a, a lot of causally relevant information that has the capacity to affect and be affected. And I think that, as clinicians, yeah. is a really strong takeaway.
0: I think, for me, what's, what's at least is kind of emerging over the last few conversations is that the idea, you know, the whole communication thing, and, and being someone that's interested in communication, it seems like communication was or I thought about communication as it was just a a good thing to do. It seems like a nice thing to do, right? It seems this is a kind of altruistic, if you're compassionate and you're a healthcare professional, you generally care about the individual. So your disposition is to, to be interested in what they have to say. But I think where the cause health position really strikes home for me is that not just listening for the sake of listening, but actually there's causally relevant information there
1: Well, it's transformative. Yeah. It it has the capacity to be transformative. And and, and what do we do as therapists? Good therapists are the ones that can facilitate a transformation, to can facilitate a real change through authentic conversations that are genuine, curious, kind-natured, and facilitate somebody on a journey towards transformation. And so I think that's really something that I think perhaps people can consider after reading the chapter.
0: Matt, thanks so much for talking us through your chapter eight. My pleasure, Ollie. Thank you very much. And I'll see you probably on the Words Matter quadrilogy, Matlow version four. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to it. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.